August 6, 2023. Let's talk this morning, the fifth installment of Agada and Halakha, Life and Law. I know I told you at the beginning of the fourth one that it might very well be the last one. Here's yet another uh, continuation of sorts of uh, what we've discussed in the first four installments, uh, the first four parts of this uh, series. And uh, uh, very briefly, what we discussed and what we developed is these two dimensions uh, to understanding and appreciating uh, our practice and our relationship with God for all intents and purposes. There's the Agada expression and the Halakha expression alternatively. Halakha we defined uh, through text and context um, as the, uh, the structured uh, practice, uh, that which uh, comes with a guidelines and, uh, and descriptions and uh, determinations, which are to a large extent set forth for us. There's a methodology within which you work in determining new circumstances and understand what did and will exist. However, there's a proper structure to it. It's the system known as halakha. Agada, alternatively, is everything that lies outside of that. And included in that is the uh, mystical expressions, um, the prophetic uh, circumstances where a person uh, somehow encounters God and understands practice through that, uh, stories that are told, life which is lived. It's the organic side of Judaism, of a connection to God, through which as well, although often forgotten, although often neglected, certainly in the last several thousand years in the eyes of the rabbis, there could and should be an expression of relationship as well. We should determine action through not only the dimension of halakha, but through that of halakha as well. To the extent that in the third installment, the third of this series, we talked about how even though Kabbalah, for instance, is generally understood as being altogether different than halakha, and someone like Hacham of Adya Yosef envisioned Kabbalah as not being a determining factor in corpus of, of, uh, of Jewish thought, which should determine law, uh, on many circumstances, in many occasions, in many circumstances, it does. How do you make sense of that? Well, generally speaking, the way we wrap our head around that, the way the poskim even articulate this is that as long as within the methodological system of halakha, this fits, which means to say there's a mystical thought which is not contradicted from, by anything that we have in terms of pre-existing um, structure and stricture, well, then we would embrace it. We talked about that in one of the later classes as well, about prophecy in that context, to understand prophecy as potentially being a, a body of com co communication through which we would determine action. Harambam was very opposed. Ezra is adamant about such a thought and feeling and expression. But at the same time, there's firstly differently, different approaches and understandings of such a notion. And uh, secondly, even in the world of Harambam, we understood there are glimpses of uh, to a certain extent, you know, cracks in the uh, facade of absolute halakha without any prophetic inspiration in terms of determining law. In short, what we've discussed and what we've determined is that agada, even outside of what you and I might imagine at first glance, what determines halakha, that too has historically and in an ideal sense should be determining our practice as well. In one of those classes, I remember my mother specifically asking, has anyone, does anyone actually do this? 
Uh, in other words, in the last several thousand years, do you actually find people who enmesh halacha and agada appropriately? Uh, for example, we talked about how in our very community you have people who are possessed by the inspiration of a class which talks about Jewish thought and those alternatively obsessed with classes and thought systems determined by law, nomos, what should I do, how do I do it? without finding some sort of middle ground in that context. And so what I mentioned at the time is that Rav Cook talks at great length about this and writes about it, and we read some of it, and he, generally speaking, is envisioned as someone who either strove or actually found some sort of um, fine line in the middle which he was able to tread upon. Uh, do his uh, followers, do those who uh, descended from his thought, also practice and envision the world and see it the same way? Hard to determine. The answer is probably no. It's a very difficult, idealistic vision to have. But I'd like to return to that point and then push things a little bit forward in the words of Rav Cook himself in source number one. This is one of his letters in his Igerot, his Igerot Kof Gima, the 103rd. And so he's in the context of, it doesn't matter. And he writes, It's important that we have a, uh, an open access from one boundary to the other. He says the knowledge, the corpus of information which is found in the halacha domain should spread into that of agada as should that of agada into halacha. what Rav Cook is introducing in this paragraph, what he's what he's promising us as an ideal is one in which halacha expressed through, again, narrow confines, strict determination, absolutes in terms of what should be practiced and what shouldn't be done. What can I eat? What can I not eat? What may I do? What should I not do? That needs to somehow lead into the emotional, the emotive expression of a philosophical framework, of one in which I think and feel and determine based on authentic expression as me um, envisioning and feeling this world. He says the concept which the Gemara refers to in Masechet the famous expression of the Hachamim Terbili Ezer. You should know Torah is no longer determined or never was governed by the heavens. Says Rav Cook, so understand what that means. He says, Harambam is what point that we made. Says very clearly, prophecy, heavenly inspiration has no place in halacha. He says, Mikol makom aloshitata tosafot hi de'enze klal gadol tosafot, among others that we discussed in earlier classes, understand that prophecy had and might have 
certain uh, a certain role within the context of halacha. Upashut shehayu leklal ze gamken yosim vahetan nevua meolam poelet gamken al halichot torash baalpe. That's a very important point he makes. He says that in his mind, based on some sourcing, prophecy has had and we might add, should have an expression in the context of halakha. Well, that's silly. I thought halakha is entirely decided by methodology of halakha. That's we have this system. Rav Cook says it's never been that way. And as we've discussed, it shouldn't be that way. Can you really say, I communicated with God and that won't have any expression in terms of how I'll now act? Hachem ashma pashtut ha-mishnah da'avot. He makes a derasha in the Mishnah na'avot. Mishnah na'avot describes the progression of transmitting the Torah from generation to generation. It says that the Torah, maybe the oral or the uh, Masoret traditions of the Torah were given to the Zekenim, to the elders, and from them to the Nevi'im. What are the prophets holding on to the Torah? The prophets shouldn't be involved in Torah. Maybe they're rebuking the people. They're involved in Torah. Moshe kibel Torah misinai. Umesara li Yoshua. V'yoshua le zekenim. Uzekenim le Nevi'im. Why are the prophets touching, so to speak, our tradition of Torah? Says Rav Kook, maybe between the lines, what the rabbis are hinting to us is that prophecy has had and should have a certain connectedness for us with regards to our actions. If you look in the next paragraph, he goes further and he says, that is the particular and specific nature of, and this will bring us full circle with regards to what we were addressing, Eretz Yisrael, in the eyes of Rav Kook, the vision of prophecy affecting our lives was a vision which existed in Israel, and he doesn't say it explicitly, exile removed us from. At a time of being during states of being connected, I can and will express myself organically. As I'm speaking to you, I know what you want. I know how this relationship should be governed. I'm able to look at your facial expressions. I'm able to intuit based on what you're saying and how you're looking what I should be doing. The more removed I am from you, the more I need specific guidelines. I need that system of halakha. If I'm speaking to you, well, we don't need, we live together. I don't need you to explain to me what to do and what not to do. I can wake up in the morning and look at you and know that you have a headache and to bring you an Advil. It didn't need to be a guideline that when my head is in some way scrunched up and my eyes look like such, then you should bring me an Advil. Alternatively, in exile again, that's the necessity of halakha. Says Rav Kook, look at the expression of the hachamim. In more than one case, the hachamim envision Eretz Yisrael as its heir being mahkim, avira de Eretz Yisrael mahkim. Again, you might say in the physical sense, I don't know, I was uh, not too long ago there, it didn't feel... Uh, so refined to the air, to be honest, maybe it's pollution. Uh, alternatively, it's an expression of connectedness. It's not per se the physical topographical reality of Israel. He goes further and he says, and this is a real Rav Kook thought, he says, look at the difference between Talmud Bavli and Talmud Yerushalmi in many ways. He says, first and foremost, in terms of which one's clear and which one's cryptic. Anyone who's uh, spent a little bit of time studying each knows that Talmud Bavli has more uh, uh, um, uh, concise, but, but concise in the proper sense. It's, its conversations are articulated fully, but there's clear conclusions to them. Talmud Yerushalmi oftentimes leaves you lingering without fully expressed concepts. Says Rav Kook, I'll tell you why. He says, Talmud Yerushalmi is the domain of prophecy, so to speak. They are the, uh, the descendants of the prophets, and as a result, 
Prophecy is never clearly and explicitly stated. Prophecy is a domain within which you need to piece together things on your own. You need to be able to understand it, to intuit it. I could just give you a word or two. I could just pop something into your head. And you should be able to take off from that. As far removed as you are in the law and the vision of Bavel is the context wherein everything needs to be clearly stated. Everything needs to be articulated. The more distant I am from a presence and an actual interaction, the more necessary it is that I build absolute context, constructs, and structure. As we've mentioned on so many occasions, Shohan Aruch was a necessary, at least historically speaking, corpus of law during a time of displacement. Ironically, when we came to Israel, but displaced from the Altaheim in Yiddish, displaced from the old country. When we were in the old country and we had been there for hundreds of years, generation after generation, you didn't need a book to determine and tell me what to do. I just knew what to do. And I'm not thinking idyllically about this. I'm thinking about the reality. The reality was such that you were connected to something, whether it was to a divine source or to a communal source wherein you knew what to do. The more distant you are from that, the more it's necessary for me to recall and to go through. What is our minhag on this? Why don't we have this recorded? Why not put this down in, in print? Rav Kook, in turn, is suggesting that's the difference between Talmud Yerushalmi and Talmud Bavli. He elsewhere, and he hints at it over here, he says, look at the words in Talmud Bavli versus Talmud Yerushalmi. In Talmud Bavli, it's Tashema. In Talmud Bavli, it's Tahazeh. In Talmud Bavli, it says, come and listen. Nothing's clear, but everything is made clear through carefully listening. In Talmud Yerushalmi, everything is clear because you're looking at it. I don't need to fully spell it out. I don't need to articulate what you're seeing. Just look at it with your eyes. The understanding in turn of Rav Kook is that the expression of agada, so to speak, has been, will be, and is, at least in his eyes, found in Eres Israel in a place where a manifested connection is great, where you're truly experiencing God, well then that structure and stricture of halakha is not as necessary. Agada can in turn inject its vision, the mysticism which emanated from Israel in Rav Kook's explicit eyes and words was specifically because it was a land which was prone to and appropriate for that sort of organic uh, um, uh, normal life expressions of I found God, I understand them, even outside of the contours of structure and law. Yes, Ronnie? What role does the Zohar play in That's the conversation I was referring to. The Zohar, in this context, and we talked about this in an earlier class, plays the following role in halakha. First and foremost, knee-jerk response, Zohar is not a halakha book. Check, that's true. It's not. Zohar was not written as a book telling you what to do. Nonetheless, next line, we have found practices that were determined based on Zohar. Next line, gasp out loud. How could that be, right? Next line, in circumstances where the law books, i.e. Talmud Bavli, Talmud Yerushalmi, and anything and everything that followed thereafter, are absent in a conversation about concepts found in Zohar, the mystical thought has been appropriately embraced in terms of practice. What I'm saying is there's something exciting about that. There's something... It, now... You know, what, what, what I wonder about is 
We didn't have enough halakhot going on before the Zohar suddenly appears on the, on the scene. You know, it should have been rejected. It's like we never did this stuff on here. What do you, where'd you find this book? Um, I, again, I, I hear what you're saying, but I want to give you the counterclaim. The counterclaim, but the ca- more. But, but what I'm saying is you're thinking about more. I'm thinking about one of two things, either fine tuning, so determining how, and secondly, more in a way that was appropriate for the people. That's my understanding of it. It was appropriate for the people. How, how do you know it's appropriate for the people? I'm, I'm imagining that, but I'm suggesting if it was, and that's why it was embraced, it, it, it means that you, you ironically found, and this is what people get very hung up on, within a very structured and rigid system called halakha, the opportunity for branching out and finding relevancy through, ironically, a book like Zohar. Now, a book like Zohar was specifically not a halakha book, and that's where you're going to find that branching out. Right? By definition, in my relationship with my spouse, with my children, I'll be able to expand it when I throw away the rule book, when I don't consult with the experts, and I just kind of understand, well, what is it that you need? Uh, well, I know that in this circumstance I'm supposed to do this. I could be able to move past that. Alternatively, what Zohar is in its ideal sense, and I'm not uh, championing uh, a new, va- is, is that ability to, without the structure, without the halakha context, be able to determine what to do. Rav Cook, in fact, uh, at least for our purposes, concludes this point by noting that there's a basic difference between Talmud Bavli and Talmud Yerushalmi with regards to reading Pesukim in the Torah by Zaken Mamre. The Pasuk says, Ki davar ben dam le dam ben din le din, and so on and so forth. If you're uncertain about what the halakha is, and the word is davar. What does davar refer to? If you're uncertain what the davar is, well, you're going to go and determine what if someone disagrees with it. What's davar? Talmud Badi says davar if you're uncertain what the davar is. Halakha. Talmud Yerushalmi very appropriately says what's davar? Agada. I understand the difference between those two. So Rav Cook again, is very clearly making the point that Agadah needs to be necessarily enmeshed with Halakha if we're going to have a burgeoning vision of Judaism. If Judaism is going to be fresh, inspired daily, um, experienced as a relationship, Agadah needs to be a part of it. The structure is necessary during distant times, during Galut, during the vision where I don't know what to do. If alternatively, quote-unquote, I'm in, I'll find it in that in the Agadah domain. The truth is that Rav Cook, although expressing this, as we mentioned, may have per se not been able to transmit this to everyone because it's a tall task to expect people to try to uh, plug into these sorts of realities. It's interesting that Rav Zevin, Zichron Olivracha, in his book Ishim Veshitot, when he describes the personality of Rav Cook, he says Rav Cook was the paradigmatic person who enmeshed Agadah and Halakha. It's a beautiful statement about a person, at least in my mind, that's describing them as an ideal liver. But furthermore, it's understanding Rav Kook as living by his words. What does it mean? He gives one or two examples. First and foremost, he describes him as a person who was not only a thinker, but a person who had very deep feelings. So in and of itself, we're already describing he had a very rational mode of thought, but at the same time, he had an emotive side. So that's in and of itself. But furthermore, he says, many of his piske halacha were inspired by, well, it's difficult to decipher, both at once. 
He describes how when Rav Kook was talking about and writing about and fighting for heter mechira on the seventh year, every Shemitah year, when not allowed to benefit from the produce, there was major problems for the farmers and those who were settling the land of Israel. How are they going to keep their economy and the industry going? And as a result, there was a not so novel, but a thought that the produce was in some way sold to non-Jews during that year. Now there was a lot of opposition. Says Rav Zevin, look at the words of Rav Kook when he writes about this. He writes not only, and as a matter of fact, he doesn't begin the conversation by saying, I think I can prove from Talmud in your Talmud and Shohan Aruch and Harambam that this is appropriate. He instead writes, I feel the pain of the people. I realize the sorrow, the difficulties, the narrow straits that the inhabitants of the land of Israel are in. Agadah, realizing that this has to be the case. Not to say that poske halacha aren't always doing that, but says Rav Zevin, that's who Rav Kook was. He says, you found in a person both an embodiment of the soul of the people and at the same time the mind. It was an expression in terms of action, it was an expression in terms of philosophical notions. His suggestion, his understanding is that you found a person who embodied that enmeshing of agada and halacha in tandem in any and everything that he did. It's, in my mind, a fascinating uh, and, and really, you know, this, this idealistic vision uh, of living life in such a fashion. Very difficult to do. It takes a lot of courage, takes a lot of, a lot, a lot of foundation, because you need foundation in halakha, and you need to be, at the same time, a person who understands himself and understands the world around them. It's yes, sir? You're talking about art, right? That's what I'm hearing. You want to call Agada art? I'm okay with art that. Art as opposed to, let's say, uh, a scientific approach, right? So yes. It reminds me of there's a, there's a scene. You can call it the soft and hard sciences also. In the show. There's a scene in the show where uh, he's a new painter. They're actually both inmates in prison, and, and he's painting for the first time, and, and uh, he doesn't uh, indicate where the light is coming in. So his mentor tells him, Where's the light? He's like, Oh, I don't know. I guess it's everywhere. I kind of like it like this. He says, Don't do that. Learn the rules, and then go disco. You have to be intentional when so all the great artists, have, I mean, a lot of the great artists, they're specifically going against the, the rules because they know the rules. That's where the push Excellent. Excellent. So another was what, what Joe is, is articulating. It, you begin with a knowledge of the system. You see, you're, you're saying they're going against it. I'm, I'm against suggesting it. instead right. they're within the lines or, or, or right, or, or, right. or pushing the lines further um, through an understanding of the system. Because the system will limit you. Yes, if you have a strict interpretation of the system and are not able to intuitively, in my words, are organically find within it meaning, yes, the system can and will, will limit you. That's kind of what I meant yesterday, sorry, in class. Go ahead. I may have articulated earlier, that's kind of what I meant. We're talking about circuits, and I just feel like we're, we're removed from, from the overall soul of the halakha. I, I, I very much hear what you're saying, but I do believe, as you're suggesting or, or, or mentioning yourself, is that it needs to have the foundations. If you think that you're going to enter into a system of halakha and just be governed by agada, by art, by emotions, by philosophy, you're missing, you're missing the concept of what it means to live a structured... Or, or, yeah, 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 correct. Right. Yes, that's right. In line with what you're saying, the problem really started with the Mishnah, because the Mishnah was strictly halakhic, and the Gemara did, the Talmud Babli, both are going to attack them. So the interesting thing is, 
I'm not proficient in this, but there is a, uh, a already blossomed field of study in Israel today um, uh, with regards to Mishnayot and finding Agadah within the Mishnayot. Um, although they seem to be expressly purposed to, to function as halacha, certainly the way Harambam envisioned them, there's plenty of Agadah, there's a lot of crafty artistic work within the Mishnayot as well, and not only the ones you'd expect it from, A. Um, B, listen, Mishnah was an Itla Asot, as the Chachamim envisioned it. Gemara is then piecing together, well, what did Mishnah in between the lines leave to us? So I don't know that you're per se pointing out something against what we're describing. It's very much in line with it. The Mishnah is that initial structure. The Hachamim who follow thereafter then fill it in with the Agadah that's between the lines. That's, you know, that's, that's certainly the way I envision it. All right. I, to a certain extent, we're, 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 we're questioning either motive or, or it's uh, fully semantics. What I can tell you, though, is that purposefully they are structuring it through and after the, the Mishnayot. This, I mean, it's a derasha, as I knew you were going to get angry at the derasha. It's a derasha. It's a derasha. And the next point is also a derasha, but I think derashot, agada, is quite beautiful and has a lot to lend to us. The next derasha over here, and I'll call it that purposefully, is from source number three. There's a brand new book released about a month and a half ago from writings and recordings that are some decades old. It's Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky who passed away some. Uh, several decades, 1986, and his book, Emet Le'Yaakov, in his lifetime, Emet Le'Yaakov on the Torah was published after his death, first Chilek Bet, and then just now Chilek Alpha, Nevi'im and Ketubim. Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky was an important rabbi in, in, in Orthodox Jewry in America over the course of several decades. Um, anyway, in the introduction to the book, he sets forth, I had heard half of this as a child, and I never saw it inside to appreciate what he was really saying. He talks about the following, he says, the Gemara Masechi says that the, what a person is supposed to do, what's appropriate to do is every week, as we're reading from the Sefer Torah, I'm reading this coming, this past week, Parashat Ekev, I should be finishing the parasha on my own, what's called Shenai Mikra Ve'ehad Targum. I'm supposed to read each pasuk twice, and the Targum, we understand that's the interpretation, let's do it as Targum Unklus for the moment, the translation of it, one time. Now, either way you're going to do it with regards to the Targum, two times the pasuk, the Mikra, one time the uh, commentary. Why not one and one or two and two? What's the idea of two and one? What Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky, at least in my mind, ingeniously suggests goes like this. He says the ideal way to do Shenai Mikrave Had Targum is as follows to read a full passage, all the Pesukim through. Stop, then read Pasuk with Targum, Pasuk with Targum. Why would you do it in such a fashion? What do you effectuate? His suggestion is my initial reading of it is, so to speak, hearing it the way it was initially transmitted. I then read pasuk by pasuk in order to get the tradition that's accorded to each of these words. Do you understand what he's effectively suggesting? It's that even in my engagement with, dare I say it, halacha, I begin with, so to speak, a prophetic vision. Let me just hear it for what it is. Let me just hear it as if I'm hearing it from God for the first time. 
Then I'll read pasuk by pasuk and receive the traditions connected to it. But it means even in the expression today of an ideal study of Torah, I'm looking for an organic, self-inspired inspiration within it. Don't just receive this as the interpretation to the pasuk. Listen to the words. Let it speak to you initially. Then accept and understand the tradition that's inherent within it. It reminds me in this, in this context of something that's quoted more than once. I ironically heard it in Mir Yeshiva in the name of Rabbi Soloveitchik in source number four in his Shi'ure Harav on Kiryata Torah in Siman Lamid Gimel. He commented and he pointed out that when we read the Torah, um, uh, when we read the Aseret HaDeberot, we have a particular way of reading it, which is different than the general Ta'amim. And what he means by that is what we, we read with Ta'amim, the, uh, the cantillation to the Torah, what's called Ta'am-i-Lyon. And what Ta'am-i-Lyon effectively is, is the following. Whereas, generally speaking, the Torah is broken up into specific Pisukim. There are sentences that are broken up uh, based on our tradition. When it comes to Aseret HaDeberot, the Ten Commandments, they're not broken up based on sentences, but rather based on commandments. In other words, if you were to quote-unquote have it as a pasuk, lo tignov, lo tahmod, and so on and so forth, are not all individual. When we read it from the Sefer Torah, we read them individually. Lo tahmod is a pasuk in and of itself, and the next one in and of itself, and so forth. When I read about Shabbat, there's no pause in the middle, breaking it into sentences. It's all one. We read the Ten Commandments from the Sefer Torah differently than we read the rest of the Sefer Torah. Whereas the rest of the Torah is written as human sentences, the Ten Commandments are written at, read as divine utterances. Do you follow? In other words, they're broken into ten segments instead of into many sentences. His suggestion in turn, if we're to elaborate, is that even when we in today's day and age hear the Ten Commandments being read, we're re-experiencing the prophetic prophetic state of being. The idea of agada being vanished from our purview. The idea of we now have it structured and we read it as human beings. Take away the vision of God's words to us. Understand it in the ways that we have determined our terminology, our methodology. It's not so. There are brief glimpses within our tradition of times during which halakha tells us, hey, check this for a moment leave the tradition for a moment on the side and just listen to what this is saying to you. Read the Pesukim, says Rabbi Kamenetsky in Shenai Mikra, and just listen to them. Hear the Ten Commandments as if you're standing at Har Sinai. Re-experience it. Don't stop for a moment to break it up and to think about, well, how does this articulate itself in the... No, just hear it as if God's speaking to you. I think we're finding within that as well a glimpse of agada within a world of halakha that we live with that we live within. I'd like to just for a moment or two conclude this class. Yes, but peshat oftentimes, ironically, is not only you know. So what is peshat, Rami? What is peshat? How do you define peshat? Well, we have dissertations upon dissertations, books upon books, as to how to determine the word peshat. Instead of using the word peshat, I'm using the word agada. I'm using the word nevuah. I'm using the word, Ronnie Hirsch, stop and listen and say, what does that mean to me? For a moment. Of course, you'll follow it up with tradition. But stop for a moment. Just say, what did that sound like? 
Or alternatively, what did that inspire me to? What did that feel like? Right? In other words, that's what it's supposed to be. We get lost in this. We get lost in halakha. We get lost and stuck in what's this supposed to mean? How dare you think like that? Alternatively, there are supposed to be, in an ideal sense, moments in time, long moments, expressions of, I mean, this is the way it just spoke to me. How's it going to follow in terms of my particular structured action? Okay, we can discuss that separately. But that's the Agadah uh, dimensions of life. Yes, Hazrat. This is problem of course, of course, of course, nobody, of course, nobody will deny the dangers and the shortcomings of Agada, and it's for that reason again that in exile, as we began and we end every one of these classes with, at a time during which we're not certain, we're not plugged in. I don't really know. I can't determine it strictly based on my emotions. I can't just get to, in the words of Joe, the, the soul of the law and actually be certain with, with absolute resolution that this is what I'm supposed to be doing, so to speak. I understand the issue. I really do. I'm at the same time saying there is a necessary pause and reflection for us to feel it. It might not translate into only because we're in unideal circumstances, actual activity. But, but there's supposed to be an appreciation. Yeah. was able to do so, is the suggestion of Rav Zevin. And the suggestion is because there's something unique that within... That's the way Rav Cook certainly described it. Again, the uniqueness is the proximity or the manifested presence of God. That's it, which is nothing more and nothing less. Avirad Eretz Yisrael means I'm in a place... No, no, I, I, I only said I don't feel the air being different in the physical sense. I didn't say, I didn't say the land. I, you see, his son, Rav Cook's son, Rabbi Tzvi Huda Cook, in source number five, actually uh, dealt with, and you know, I, I was purposefully saving this for another occasion, but it's appropriate to talk about now. He dealt with, there's a famous teshuvah of Hatam Sofer, Hatam Sofer bin Moshe Sofer of Pressburg, right? So a very important rabbi, lived oh, more than 200 years ago. And he has a famous line in one of his teshuvah, in which he says, if you take agada and you enmesh it with halacha, you are crafting kilaim. You're, you're weaving shatnez. Very inappropriate. First, for a moment, to understand context and understand why he said that without the teshubah. Just understand the mindset. He's living in Eastern Europe during a time in which there's an increased presence and excitement about reform Jewry. Anything and everything about Hatam Sofer was Hadash Asum and Atura. We don't do anything new. Oh, what was going to be that new expression? Well, let's let the soul of the law govern. Let's let our emotions, our, our drives determine our connection to God. He's going to be very opposed to that. Well, how do you deal with that, Rabbi Tzvi Yehuda Kok? Hatam Sofer is a household name. He's a book on the shelves of every rabbinic scholar. How do you explain his teshuvah? Says Rabbi Tzvi Yehuda Kok, he says, not in these words, but I struggled with that a little bit. He says, I have a tradition from my father, from Rav Kook. He says, the tradition from my father is that the Torah Peh, the oral tradition of Hatam Sofer, he didn't just say that weaving Halachana Gada together is like Kilaim. He furthermore said, let's find the line in here, in the second paragraph here, it says, Zohi Torah Shebikhtav Shala Hatam Sofer. Aval nosaf lekach yesh gam Torah Peh mishemo. Masoret Ba'al peh b'shem Abba Harav Zatzal. 
כל מי שאומר בנגלה שאינו מאמין בנסתר, יש לה חשוש שבנסתר אינו מאמין בנגלה. Is there any person who says that when it comes to, so to speak, the revealed, he's referring to the nistar as the agadah, the, the mystical side, the agadah, and the nigla being the revealed, the uh, traditional sources. Anyone who says in the traditional sources that I can't accept, I can't embrace anything that's in Zohar, anything that's outside of the strict confines of what I know and have in front of me, you have to be suspicious that when it comes to um, the, 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 the nistar, they furthermore don't and wouldn't agree with even the nigla. In other words, a person who breaks off any vision, any vision of, in, uh, of accepting, of embracing a different mode of thought, you have to believe that their mode of thought itself is not authentic. In other words, what he's describing in a sentence or two is that the enmeshing is what he feared most. The understanding, the existence is not the issue. To exist and to understand there is agada, there is halacha, uh, that uh, even Hatam Sofer was comfortable with. To say that our decisions in halacha, as Ezra had mentioned earlier, can be governed by expressive emotions, the nistar side of matters, that's the issue. The issue is when the system, the methodology breaks down because something comes from outside of it and destroys it. That's where, says Rabbi Tzvi Yehuda Kuk, there was a problem in the world of Hatam Sofer. In truth, he describes how he met a great-great-grandchild of Hatam Sofer. He writes that in the next slide, he says, Be'akiva Sofer, he says, was the last rabbi a Sofer must have been from the same lineage, he says. He was the last rabbi of Pressburg, I guess right before the war. He came to Jerusalem and he used to pray, he used to uh, pray in the mornings in Yeshivat Merkaz Harav. That was the Yeshiva of Rav Kook, which is fascinating in and of itself. He says, he said to the rabbi of Pressburg in the fourth line of the second paragraph, Certainly, I agree, you can't and combine seamlessly and easily the philosophical notions, the emotive expressions of being a Jew with the practical uh, structured side. He said, I certainly agree. Both the expressed sides of Torah, which is, so to speak, revealed, as well as that which is more concealed are all true. The only issue is when they're inappropriately combined, when the emotions are determining what I should do instead of having a structure wherein the emotions can sprout, can blossom best. Again, just to put it all together and to understand the ideal and the vision and the dangers that are inherent therein, it's a, it's a series of classes in which we're struggling with. We have this system called halacha. We know that it could and should be governing our lives, but at the same time, we sometimes have this tendency to feel as if matters became objective as opposed to having a certain personal, individual connectedness. 
and for good reason. As you're less removed from the source, you're less capable of actually having an authentic individual expression. But what about when I do? Is there room for that? What about opening up the gates for me to live that sort of life? So we're seeking to understand that it's unideal. It's not a life that, so to speak, the Torah, God, or even the Chachamim envisioned as where we should be, in which everything was just governed by a structure. Uh, it was, and to a certain extent could be, if done properly, at the same time enmeshed, as Rav Cook apparently was able to, according to Rav Zevin, get to, some sort of agada and halacha expression in tandem. I'll just conclude with a, somewhat of a concrete example along these lines. It just, it, it, it bears mention. We talked about, again, nivuah and halacha. We talked about kabbalah and halacha. What we didn't talk about, although we had many classes on this, is just straight up, agada and halacha, midrash and halacha. When the rabbis express something in Talmud or elsewhere, which clearly, in the context of their saying it, has no practical ramifications, could it, should it govern a conversation in terms of practice? For example, the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat and Daf Pechet describes how when we, dis- we receive the Torah, every, every word, every utterance of God filled the world with a pleasant odor of besamim. Should that in any way determine what I do in my life? Because I remember the Torah being given like that, because the rabbis describe it that way. Yosef has in which he was asked the following. Is it inappropriate on Shavuot to adorn our homes and our synagogues with pleasant smelling um, flowers, branches and leaves of sorts. Is that inappropriate? Where did such a custom uh, emerge from? Gaon Mivilna, well-known, in a well-known expression says, inappropriate, it's we got that from the Christians or other sects and other religions. Alternatively, Chacham quoting from many who preceded him, suggests we got this from Midrashim, from that Midrash that I just mentioned, from another Midrash that says on Shavuot, we are ruled or we are judged based on what sort of fruits are going to blossom in our lives that year. Says Chacham Yosef, but maybe it's inappropriate appropriate. Maybe I'm in meshing midrash and halacha. Answers Chacham Yosef, based on many sources, we won't enmesh the two when it doesn't fit the methodology. In other words, if the Gemara, if the halacha dictates that this is forbidden to be eaten, and then I look in the midrash and it describes how Abraham Avinu was eating that, I won't in turn say, I can eat that. Alternatively, if there's no expressed mention of this matter, in Jewish law, halacha, and there is a reference to it in Agada in Midrash, the gates are, according to most, wide open for acceptance of that in terms of normative practice. He brings that up in this context. Don't imagine that this is forbidden, it's the ways of the non-Jews. Instead say, look what the Midrash says. The Midrash describes how this time period is a time period of flowers, of good smells, of, of, from, from vegetational growth, of leaves, of greenery. Adorn your house and your synagogue with it. He, he goes further, he cites several other sources along these lines, but the common denominator all being, as we mentioned by prophecy, as we mentioned by Jewish mysticism, neither is barred entrance to a governance in terms of what I do. They're only excluded from the 
specific formulation when I have the structure of halacha. However, when there is no expression of halacha, when that system hasn't already been crafted and set forth for me, we certainly open the books, the minds, the hearts to the circumstances of midrash, to tradition, to life in this world, to connectedness to God in that organic, intuitive fashion in order to decide and determine what it can and should be and my life and our lives should look like in terms of our connection to God. To summarize then, the, the concept and the idea of agadan halacha is a daunting one. It's one which we would live lives of, of, of relative ease if we would just say, I'll be inspired to become a better Jew and then tell me how to act as a Jew separately, alternatively, an ideal a life which we strive for and get to in specific moments. And when we really strive harder and we're imbued with a certain uh, quality of heart and spirit, we can get to it as Rav Cook did, we can find some sort of perfect enmeshing of Agada and Halacha. When the Hachamim imagined how the destruction brought forth, they were bemoaning the fact, can you imagine a life in which we only do based on the structure that tells us what to do? And they told us in Masech Baba Mitzia the destruction of the Mikdash was because we didn't know how to go Lifni Mishurat Adin. They were expressing the same thing. We had already deteriorated prior to the destruction of the Mikdash to a point in being during which we just did based on what we knew what to do. We weren't able to stretch within that. Said God in turn, maybe you want to be a little distant because you're acting as if you're distant already. The idea then of Agadan Halacha, which has found certain manifestations within our own lives, is an ideal which I think we need to each have at the front of our mind with regards to any action that we engage in, any thought which we uh, bring up in our minds. The lives we live cannot and should not be strictly governed by Halacha, slash and separately Agada, but rather by the two in tandem, by the life and the law at once. Baruch Adonai Amen Amen. Thank <laughs> you.